Hello, welcome to Road to Zero podcast. Episode by episode, we'll investigate the key challenges and opportunities facing business and society in the transition to net zero. Our main focus will be on the UK, although the experience there may also be mirrored elsewhere. So, what is net zero? Net zero is a state where the release of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere is balanced by their removal. Until we reach net zero, then climate change and global warming will continue. And so will the frequency of extreme and unpredictable weather events which threaten lives, property, society and the economy. To reach net zero, we must decarbonize key sectors. This means replacing fossil fuels with clean and renewable electricity in areas like transport, heating, manufacturing and, of course, food production and agriculture. It isn't going to be cheap or easy, but there are many opportunities along the way to create new businesses, new wealth and new employment. The era of global warming has ended. The era of global boiling has arrived. The cost of renewable technologies, wind turbines, solar panels, batteries have been falling far quicker than anyone expected. We currently have about 7,000 kilometers of long distance transmission network in place. We need to add another 4,000 kilometers. We are proving simultaneously that it is the best job creator when you go green. We want food security. We don't want to swap that for energy security. What happens next is up to every one of us. In this opening episode of Road to Zero, we take a look at a major consequence of decarbonising the electricity supply. That is, the growing number of applications to construct utility-scale solar farms in the countryside. A typical example of this is Woolpot Solar Farm, which is located in North Yorkshire, next to the North York Moors National Park. Following that, we take a look into two of the issues raised by such developments. Firstly, are there better places to locate solar power facilities than on productive agricultural land? Secondly, is there a better process for selecting sites for solar farms which averts conflict between developers and local communities? First, we take a look at an application to construct a solar farm in the North Yorkshire countryside. It's called Woolpot Solar Farm and is located near the village of Husswaite, which is adjacent to the North York Moors National Park and what used to be called the Howardian Hills area of outstanding natural beauty. Woolpots is just one of many similar schemes being proposed across rural England and Wales. All are characterised by an arcane planning process which has pitted local residents against developers seeking to cash in on supplying solar electricity to the grid and farmers attracted by the financial incentives. Up to £1,000 an acre for up to 40 years is typical. Woolpots is now in its second incarnation as a revised application. The original application was rejected in January 2023 by Hamilton District Council, which has since been replaced by North Yorkshire Council, which will consider the revised scheme. Yet despite the revisions, Woolpots is still being vigorously opposed by local residents. They believe it marks the industrialisation of the countryside and will have a profound impact on an attractive rural area increasingly dependent on tourism and leisure. They also have concerns about the safety of the large lithium battery storage facility which forms part of the scheme. Solar is one of the cheapest forms of electricity generation, so it's right that we try and see more of it across the country. But we do need to protect our most valuable agricultural land. To get an up-to-date summary of the revised Woolpots application, I spoke to two local residents opposed to the scheme. I also asked Lightrock Power, the agent of the Woolpots solar farm developer, to be interviewed, but they twice failed to respond. So, I joined Chris and Hannah Nichols in their garden overlooking the Woolpots site. 
Chris is a senior teacher and a counsellor on Husswaite Parish Council, and his partner Hannah runs a small day nursery in the village. Chris, Hannah, welcome. First, let's set the scene. Can you please explain how the revised Woolpots development, let's call it Woolpots 2 for simplicity, differs from the scheme that was rejected by Hamilton District Council back in January 2023? In the first place, the original proposal had two parts, north of Husswaite Road to the A19 and south of that road. But the revised proposal, or Woolpots 2 as we're calling it, comprises only of the south part. So the north part, which was the most controversial site in the original proposal, has been removed altogether. However, a lot more land has been added in the southern portion, so the site is actually bigger now than it was in the original proposal. It's bigger than the scheme that was originally proposed? Yes, there's more of the southern part. The total size of the south site on the old proposal that was turned down was 50.81 hectares, but on the resubmitted scheme, or Woolpots 2, it's 51.79 hectares. In acres, that's 125.5 compared to 128 acres. What's happened is that the southern portion, which is to the south of the road leading from Husswaite to the A19, has been expanded by putting back in some parcels of the best and most versatile land, or BMV land for short. These parcels had actually been removed from the original application because of pushback from the Hambleton District Council planning officers. What this means is that the quality of BMV land forming Woolpots 2 is 36.5 hectares compared to 17 hectares before. This is 90 acres of BMV land compared to 42 acres before. Just staying with this issue about the use of best and most versatile land, or BMV land as it's called, so what you're saying is that of the 128 acres making up Woolpots 2, 90 acres or 70% of the total is actually BMV land. Now, my understanding is that national and local policy is to avoid using BMV land for development. So why is the Woolpots 2 developer taking this approach rather than utilising lower grade land? Who knows, but this time round the Woolpots 2 developer hasn't bothered to lodge any form of sequential test analysis. That's an analysis of the soil types which determines the grade of the land. We know that there are more areas of grade 3B land on the flat land away from the village which would be better used for this solar farm and we feel that Woolpots developer is acting in direct contravention to the national and local policy on this. Also, while a good connection to the National Electricity Grid can be made from 12 kilometres away, we think that they are just going for the cheapest option by choosing a site that is very close to a grid connection, regardless of the fact that the land is of high agricultural quality. Let's just move on and take a look at the technical side of the revised scheme. In terms of the power actually generated, the battery storage system and the number of solar panels, etc., how does Woolpots 2 compare to the original proposal? The output from the revised scheme is being reduced from 45 megawatts to 32 megawatts, while the storage capacity of the lithium battery energy storage system, or BESS, is the same at 74 megawatts. And as the original proposal, there will be no direct benefit to the community in terms of electricity supply. All of the electricity generated or stored will go into the national grid for use UK-wide. There'll be some 50,000 tilting solar panels, each about 3 metres high. The lithium battery storage area will be spread across 32 shipping container style buildings and a second electricity substation will be built. Together, the battery storage system and the new substation will, we believe, occupy about 1.5 to 2 hectares or 4 to 5 acres, which is huge and about the size of two or three football pitches. This area will be located directly alongside the road opposite the existing national power grid. In places, this part will be 6 metres high and so much more noticeable than the rest of the solar farm. What's also possible is that the battery containers may be double stacked. We've asked the developers several times to provide 3D rendering of the battery area, but so far they haven't responded. Another point to note is that construction work is likely to go on for six to nine months, with all the disruption that will entail. 
What I would like to emphasise is that because of the size of the proposed lithium battery storage system and the new substation, we actually believe it should be an entirely separate planning application. Let's be clear, the term solar farm makes it all sound nice and cosy, but the reality is that this is an industrial facility, pure and simple. There are two other solar farms right next to the Woolpots 2 site, that's Boscar and Peter Hill. So what would be the overall impact on the landscape or the cumulative impact of all three of these solar farms taken together? Yep, Woolpots 2 will be adjacent to the existing Boscar and Peter Hill solar farms. This would create a total combined area covered by panels of about 150 hectares or 370 acres. This is huge and because it's all running uphill towards Husthwaite it will have a major impact on the landscape. The Woolpots 2 developer admits it changes the characteristics of Hambleton areas conservation areas 23 and 25 and it definitely adversely affects the rural setting of the conservation village, particularly when combined with the related industrial structures alongside the road. But it's not just the solar panels, there are also fencing around the whole facility. We believe that there will be between 3 and 4 kilometres of security fencing around the site. Then there'll be the gates, some 74 CCTV cameras mounted on 4 metre high poles with LED lights, plus the access roads. Is security a particular concern with this sort of facility? Yes, security is quite worrying. The insurance industry is increasingly alert to the risks associated with land-based industrial solar and to battery storage facilities with their fire and safety risks. Over the last few years, there's been a significant rise in incidents of theft of cabling and panelling, which, according to some reports, have involved organised crime. The best institutions of insurance brokers is currently working on guidance for its members, which may require developers to install bigger, stronger and more visible security fencing to get insurance covered. One recent report from a specialist supplier of security fencing specifies two types of security fencing which can resist cutting for 12 to 15 minutes and these are recommended by the police. These fences have denser and tougher meshing than the illustrations in the Woolpot 2 application and would be more prominent than the current style fencings. I understand that while the Woolpots 2 development would have an estimated lifespan of 40 years, it's considered to be a temporary installation. But from what I've seen, the developers take the view that it would be good to take the land out of production, as this would enhance biodiversity. What are your thoughts on this? Well, increased biodiversity is one of the claims made by the Woolpots 2 developer. A view, it says, is supported by the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, the RSPB. But we've struggled to find any scientific evidence to support claims that biodiversity would be improved. For example, one argument is that the land will not be subject to intensive agriculture, so we'll be able to recover over time and become more productive. However, much of the land earmarked for Woolpots 2 is actually used for grazing, so it's not subject to intensive agricultural practices. Another thing is that the solar panels have to be periodically cleaned and this involves spraying detergents on them and it's likely that these detergents would leach into the ground. And let's not forget that the site will be surrounded by a security fence, so the free movement of deer and other animals across this land will be impaired. The point is that there's little evidence to support claims of improved biodiversity. And looking at it another way, Natural England has claimed that 40 years of solar farm installation will not decrease the quality of land. However, as a result of a Freedom of Information request, Natural England has had to admit that they don't actually have any evidence to support such a claim. Now another issue related to both the old and the revised Woolpots proposals is the battery storage. That is, how any unused electricity generated by the solar farm or taken from the grid at off-peak times would be stored until it is required. But let me just ask you, what are your thoughts on this issue? Well, lithium battery safety is not a new issue. And as the use of batteries have increased, so have the number of incidents which show safety is a major issue when this must be taken seriously. For example, there have been battery fires, or thermal runaways as they are called, involving all types of equipment, ranging from electric scooters and bikes to electric cars, and right the way up to the utility-scale battery storage systems like those proposed for Woolpots 2. 
These incidences have happened all over the world and are well documented. But the first incident here in the UK was in Liverpool in September 2020 when a lithium battery container, probable similar to those like those being used in wool pots, set on fire. This led to an explosion which scattered debris more than 20 metres away and there was also a toxic gas cloud which very nearly led to an evacuation of other properties nearby. It took the local fire and rescue services some 59 hours to bring this incident under control and many thousands of gallons of water had to be used. There have been many other incidences elsewhere. Presumably the Woolpots developer is alert to these safety issues with lithium batteries and has considered them in their application. So why are you concerned? What we find really worrying about the Woolpots 2 battery safety plan is the lack of detail provided by the developer. They say they've consulted with North Yorkshire Fire and Rescue Service and that they are complying with the minimum standards put forward by the National Fire Chiefs Council. But one problem with this is that these minimum standards seem to fall well short of the real-life experiences of dealing with lithium battery incidents. What's more, the Woolpot 2 developer hasn't mentioned the possibility of battery explosions or toxic gas clouds. These are considered by the experts to be serious risks and both of them occurred in the Liverpool incident and elsewhere. Let's remember the Huswick Village Primary School is just only one kilometre from the proposed Woolpots 2 lithium battery storage system and as parents of children that attend the school this is a real concern. But the developer has made no reference to this. Surely, with the potential of incidents involving an explosion or the release of highly toxic gas clouds or even both, some thought should have been given to an evacuation plan. If this facility is going to be around for 40 years, then what are the odds on something happening in, it, in this time? Let's move on to some of your other concerns, for example about the potential impact of Woolpot's solar farm development on the local economy. You've mentioned that should the development go ahead, then it will occupy high-grade agricultural land. But what's your view on any potential impact on other aspects of the local economy, such as leisure and tourism? Look, there's little doubt that the development will have an adverse impact on the local economy, which relies heavily on casual visitors to the area and holidaymakers. Husweight is an access point to the adjacent North Yorkshire Moors National Park and to the Hawardian Hills area of outstanding natural beauty and has many visitors come to the area to stay, eat, cycle, walk. I have a small cafe where young families come um, and they are deeply upset by this development. As I've said, the road from the A19 to Husweight, which leads to the National Park and the AOMB, will be bounded by this large industrial facility. The fact is that Woolpots 2 will in no way contribute to the rural economy or help sustain the local community. It will do nothing for local jobs. What it will do is detract from the distinctive rural character of the village and it will destroy the strong sense of place. There are also some heritage aspects to your opposition, I believe. Can you comment on these? Husway is a conservation village and there are numerous heritage assets which have a statutory protection in law. The rural settings and surrounding landscape are important, but the character of the conservation area and the heritage assets would be altered, industrialised and significantly harmed by the proposed development. Highthorn House, a Grade 2 listed building, which is mentioned in the Doomsday Book, is a manor house dating from the 16th century. It lies on elevated ground with a direct view over the proposed Woolpots 2 solar farm. The importance of the surrounding countryside as an agricultural area can be seen in the historic landscape character around Highthorn and the conservation village. Woolpots 2 would have a major negative impact on this. I'd like to draw to a close now with one final question. This relates to the broader issue of land use. What I'm thinking of here is the Woolpots developers' preference to build a solar farm on agricultural land rather than on brownfield sites or on commercial rooftops. What are your thoughts on this? I think this is tied up with the fact that the Woolpots developer wants to locate as close to the grid connection as possible and so save costs and increase their profits. But the fact is that there are other ways to connect to the grid and there are many other solar farms in the UK that are some distance away from grid connection. 
When it comes to brownfield sites and rooftops, a recent report from University College of London for the Campaign for the Protection of Rural England, or CPRE, concluded that there are more than enough brownfield and rooftop sites to meet the UK's need for solar energy. And North Yorkshire has quite a few unused brownfield sites, such as disused World War II RAF airfields. These include Thalthorpe, Dalton, Helperby, and more recent closures such as Dishforth, Topcliffe and Linton-on-Ouse. None of these have been factored in and taken into account by the Woolpots 2 developer. Well, thanks, Hannah, and thanks, Chris. You touched on some interesting points which I'm sure we'll be returning to in future episodes. But to conclude, let me just say thanks very much for your time. So let's move on to the second part of this podcast. Where should solar electricity generation facilities be located? Earlier this century, thanks to some very generous incentives, there was a headlong rush by homeowners to install photovoltaic systems on their rooftops. More recently, the emphasis has shifted and a growing number of schemes are being proposed which place large-scale solar farms often occupying hundreds of acres or more, on rural agricultural land. Faced with low prices for their produce, it's not difficult to understand why farmers and landowners are interested in solar schemes, which pay around £1,000 per acre per year for up to 40 years. But is the use of valuable agricultural land or other greenfield sites a good idea? Would it be better to locate solar electric generation on brownfield sites or even on commercial roof space? To help answer this question, I spoke to Mark Barrett, Professor of Energy and Environmental Systems Modelling at the Energy Institute of University College London. Mark is one of the co-authors of the report on net zero emission energy and land use commissioned by the Campaign for the Protection of Rural England, the CPRE, and published in May 2023. In our conversation, Mark raised some interesting points which could have significant implications for the siting of solar electric generation facilities and especially solar farms in rural areas. Hello, Mark. It's good to meet you. Hello, Ian. What was the overall aim of the recent report you prepared for CPRE, Net Zero Emission Energy Scenarios and Land Use? How would you summarise the overall aim? Well, um, Net Zero Emission Energy Scenarios have been produced uh, by a number of bodies, such as the uh, Climate Change Committee, National Grid and the Government. And these have substantial renewable energy uh, generation Uh, and supply, including from on and offshore wind, solar PV and biomass. And CPRE are interested in the possible implications of these for land use and other impacts in rural locations, which is the, uh, the area of interest of CPRE. So the overall aim was to give estimates of the land use and for solar PV, the potential for PV generation in urban areas on rooftops and car parks and so on. Um, We've tried to be conservative in our estimates. Um, Better data would perhaps show a greater urban potential than what we found. When it comes to the generation of renewables as part of the UK's target of achieving net zero emissions of greenhouse gases by 2050, Can you summarise your key findings when it comes to the UK's total solar PV generating capacity and the specific type of land use? Um, The low emission scenarios have a range of capacity of solar PV um, with a maximum of 90 gigawatts. And this is to be installed by around 2050. And 90 gigawatts is equivalent to 25 million houses with four kilowatts, you know, a fairly large domestic installation on the roof. And that capacity of solar, um, it doesn't really matter whether it's in an urban or a rural location, 
would require about 1,700 square kilometres of land, which is about 1 to 1.5% of the UK land area. And as I said, this could be uh, urban or rural. We found that over 60 gigawatts could be placed on domestic roofs, uh, over 40 gigawatts on non-domestic roofs, and over 10 gigawatts on car parks, totaling about 120 gigawatts, uh, which could be installed in the built environment in urban areas, as compared to the required 90 gigawatts total. So from this point of view, and technical potential, rural solar farms are not needed to achieve the required capacity. But of course, um, other issues, particularly cost, need to be taken into account when partitioning capacity between urban and rural areas. Let's take a look at these other issues. In particular, can you explain how such things as the nature of demand for electricity, grid capacity and transmission can all impact the location of solar PV generating facilities? A further issue uh, which is difficult to ascertain properly is that um, whereas in urban areas we will for net zero, most of the net zero supply is, as I said, is renewable and nuclear electricity. And this will feed into heat pumps and electric vehicle charging. And those new demands will mean that electricity demand overall will, will grow by a factor of two or three over the next uh, 30 years or so. And so we will need a lot more transmission capacity both in urban areas and outside areas, and uh, you know, by a factor of two or three. Now, in urban areas, that's where most demand is, and these new demands of heat pumps and electric vehicles will increase peak demands. But the thing is that those peak demands for heat pumps will be generally in a winter's evening, will be the peak demand on heat pumps, whereas the peak output of solar PV systems will be around noon in the summer. So you can use the same grid capacity both to, to supply heat pumps and electric vehicles and to absorb the generation from solar PV. So in other words, you're using that grid capacity for two purposes. In contrast, when you have uh, remote um, renewable supply, whether from solar farms or indeed wind turbines, then you're going to need extra capacity of the transmission grid outside of urban areas, as well as an increase in the capacity in the urban grid. And furthermore, the, um, the losses will be generally higher if you're generating outside the uh, urban area rather than inside it. Now, we don't know very much about, um, there's not a lot of public data on what the transmission grid uh, in increase, increases will be required and where they are. Um, so this is, this is one great uncertainty. Um, but what is true is that there's some very long delays to get transmission connection um, in, uh, for, for rural wind or solar systems, um, whereas um, the, the delay is likely to be less in urban areas because it is so close to demand and, and the politics of serving people with, with electricity. So what you're saying here, Mark, is that because the bulk of the demand for electricity, or should we say the increased demand due to net zero, will come from heat pumps and electric vehicles in the urban environment then this has clear implications for transmission costs and the location of solar PV facilities. Can you just clarify that point, please? Okay, well, um, start with demand, which is where um, energy system planning should always start, is, you know, what are the demands for electricity? Well, um, one of the big issues is replacing gas, which we use in gas boilers to provide heat, and to replace oil which we use in petrol and diesel vehicles and the basic strategy for that is to electrify them 
So we'll, we'll have electric vehicles with electric batteries um, in them and heat pumps, which are either be inside consumers' premises um, or might be heat pumps might also supply heat via district heating systems. So this, these heat pumps and these electric vehicles will increase demand, um, as I say, by roughly a factor of two or three. And they will have different times when they peak. So for heat pumps, um, generally the, the colder it is, the more electricity you use in your heat pumps. And of course, generally uh, we need most heating on cold winter evenings, for example, in the winter. Um, electric vehicle charging, uh, because they have batteries, that is more flexible. Um, and so you can charge at off-peak times. Or indeed, in the summer, where solar PV is outputting much more electricity than you need, you might be charging your electric vehicles at that time. Um, and so these uh, heat pumps and electric vehicles and so on will have a peak demand capacity, which might be about four or five kilowatts for a, a typical house. Um, and at the same time, if you have a four or five kilowatts PV system on your roof, which will um, output at peak on a sunny summer day at noon, then that's at a different time. So you can use this four kilowatts capacity for your heat pumps or your electric vehicle charging. And at the same time, it's adequate capacity for your PV system on your roof. Now, um, obviously not all of the PV uh, uh, generation will be used within uh, the building. Well, it may be in, in a, in a non-domestic building. Um, but the thing is that the surplus PV um, may either go into your electric vehicle battery um, or it may be exported. But if it's exported, it doesn't have to go very far because it's surrounded by other demands in schools and hospitals and so forth. In contrast, if you have a, a remote rural uh, energy generator, like a solar farm, <coughs> then you first of all need to transmit that energy into uh, the city or the town and um, that's generally done at high voltage so that the losses are not too high and you will need to connect that farm into existing transmission grid or with a new link into existing transmission grid but the overall capacity of the transmission grid will have to be increased by a factor of two or three and the more uh, generation capacity you have in rural areas, um, the greater the transmission grid capacity. Whereas if you have quite a lot of that generation in urban areas, then you need a lower increase in the capacity of the transmission grid outside the city. So if you have a car park based PV system, you can have associated with that an electric vehicle battery charging setup, and you can do that locally. There's no need to go to the high voltage electricity transmission grid to transfer the power generated in the car park to the electric vehicle battery charging setup. Is that right? Exactly so. So you, you can conceive of, um, if you like, local urban electricity planning. We say, okay, we've got a car park here with so many kilowatts of solar PV. We've got these uh, charging systems for car, electric cars with such and such a capacity uh, and the electric cars have batteries so we can do off-peak charging there and you may also have some batteries possibly in the car park um, to, to, to do charging uh, when the sun isn't shining um, or you might uh, integrate uh, the car park and typically of course they will be near uh, things like supermarkets or hospitals or schools or other other large demands light industry for example and so you can come up with a local integrated uh, integrated energy system um, whereas if you separate them by you know tens or tens or hundreds of kilometers then plainly in general you're going to need more 
transmission grid to connect the two together. And not only will this cost a lot, but it requires, just as solar farms need a lot of planning, so do uh, new transmission grids. So, for example, there's uh, uh, a lot of opposition locally where I live in East Anglia um, for landing uh, offshore wind and connecting the offshore wind across the land to demand centres with new transmission lines. And um, just as that's a problem for planning and opposition uh, by local communities, um, so it will be the case for solar farms. Of course, not all solar farms or indeed onshore wind or indeed uh, offshore wind uh, uh, generators will need new transmission grid, um, but many will. And so there's um, this sort of environmental impact and opposition to the impact, which um, is generally more problematic in rural areas than it is in urban areas. Okay, just moving on. Given that the current trend in transport, heating and other areas such as steel production is towards decarbonisation through electrification, what would you say about the current suitability of the UK national grid transmission system and the way it's configured to take the renewable energy currently produced in the UK and, perhaps looking further ahead, the amount that would be required to achieve net zero? Well, the... the the grid in the UK, it comprises two parts. One is the low voltage grid, where consumers are connected in towns and cities and so on. Um, and the high voltage transmission grid, which transmits electricity over long distances to demand centres in cities. And the transmission grid connects to the major generators. And historically, um, first of all, the major generators tended to be um, centred around coal fields because coal generation was a very important part. And then uh, a bit later, nuclear generators, which for uh, safety reasons are located coastally in the main. And so that determined the sources of electricity. And then it, that determined pretty much where the sources were what the design of your transmission network uh, was going to be. So a lot of uh, major transmission from the central coalfield areas and a lot of transmission from the coastal uh, nuclear generating areas, uh, but also, um, uh, and, then, and then the third phase really was the development of gas generation. Um, and that was often on or by old coal, existing coal stations again to use the existing gas, uh, electricity transmission. So that's a sort of historical development. Now we're going to into uh, a phase where demand instead of 300 terawatt hours, the demand is going to be double or triple uh, of what it is now, both in the terms of the amount of energy, but also in the peak capacity, the peak demand and the peak generation supply. So there's been a huge increase going to be needed in the grid both at the high voltage and the low voltage ends and not only that but the location of generators so for example onshore um, generators um, they they are in high wind areas which tends to be uh, near the coast or high on hills and so forth um, and they're less uh, there's far less generation for a given land area from a solar farm or from a, an onshore wind farm and so they're more dispersed so you need a lot more transmission for those devices and then of course um, a major and I think probably the major source of electricity will be offshore wind and obviously a lot of the grid development there is actually offshore to connect the wind turbines to the shore and then once they're landed on shore, some of that will be able to use existing transmission grid, for example, to uh, from old coal stations or um, uh, nuclear stations, but some will have to be new. And so we're going to have a big expansion of the transmission grid outside of cities, 
which um, the transmission grid, if it's on pylons, is much cheaper than burying it under the ground. But obviously, when it's on pylons, it has a larger visual impact, and then you get more opposition, just as you do to solar farms, because of the loss of visual amenity, it's so-called. It just doesn't look very nice. Um, whereas the transmission network in cities, of course, is mostly buried, um, and so there's no particular visual impact uh, uh, following from that. And so that makes it less problematic in that sense. Well, some food for thought here. In particular, that the growth in demand for electricity is going to double or triple from the current 300 terawatt hours, both in terms of the amount of energy, but also in terms of peak capacity, peak demand and peak generation supply. Also, that most of this increase will be in urban areas. Mark, you noted that over 60 gigawatts of solar electricity required in the UK could be placed on domestic rooftops, that over 40 gigawatts on non-domestic rooftops and over 10 gigawatts in car parks, altogether totaling about 120 gigawatts, which could be installed in the built environment in urban areas. You added that this compares to the required 90 gigawatt total of solar electricity required to reach net zero. And based on this, you concluded that rural solar farms are not needed to achieve the required capacity. So given all this, I'd just like to pick up on your finding about car parks. Can you say just how much area in the UK is actually covered by car parks which are amenable to locating solar PV facilities? Did you get any estimates for that? Yes, we. Um, you know, the first thing to say is that uh, we used the available data and we compared our estimates with other estimates, so we, we don't think they're unreasonable. Um, there's uh, some, something like 17 to 20,000 car parks, uh, non-private residential car parks in the UK, i.e. public car parks, uh, and they have an area of about 130 to 200 square kilometres. Uh, the lower figure is ours, uh, the 200 square kilometres is another estimate. Um, so I think we're being conservative. So taking the lower figure of 130 square kilometres, um, this would generate about 11 gigawatts, which is about 10% of UK needs in these zero emission scenarios. And that 11 gigawatts is if 50% of the car park area is covered, which is essentially, um, if you look at a car park, if only the car park spaces are covered, but not the access roads leading to the car park spaces. But of course, um, some car park systems cover a much higher fraction. And so, again, we think we're conservative, but, but maybe it'd be 11 gigawatts with 50% coverage, but maybe 15 gigawatts or even 20 gigawatts is possible with a higher fraction. Um, and so these car parks could produce about 10% of the uh, soda capacity as needed in the zero emission scenarios. All right, then. Well, look, well, thank you once again for your time, and uh, let's speak again soon. I'll be in touch. Interesting, Ian. Okay, you take care. Bye bye. Cheers, then. Bye. Bye. In our next interview, we asked Chris Stratton OBE about a process for selecting sites for solar farms which could avert conflicts between developers and local communities. Chris is the author of a draft siting strategy for solar voltaic arrays, which takes into account the significance of such locations as old airfields to the UK's net zero ambitions. Chris is a landscape architect and town and country planner. After graduating, he spent 13 years with Suffolk County Council, working on their landscape conservation policies, which also included the Sizewell B nuclear power station. There followed some 25 years in private practice with companies in the UK and Ireland, both of which have extensive experience in the siting of renewable energy facilities. That noise is a Lancaster bomber taking off. 
During World War II, it would have been a familiar sound in North Yorkshire and East Anglia, which are littered with disused airfields of the sort where these famous aircraft were once stationed. Today, many of these former airfields are largely unused. The concrete that formed the runway, plus other debris, including in some cases old munitions, remain buried, making them unsuitable for agriculture. But such flat and expansive brownfield sites potentially make ideal locations for solar farms. Now, Chris, you've drafted a siting strategy for solar photovoltaic power arrays. Can you say what this is about and why you think such a strategy is necessary and what its objectives are? Well, the problem is that hitherto, the um, way that um, solar um, P- well, PV, solar energy, um, seems to sort of happen is a rather ad hoc process, which seems to be developer-led, um, and it seeks out sort of the easiest and cheapest sites for them, which is not always, uh, in fact, often isn't, very uh, the best that can be done um, in terms of sustainable siting for um, ecology, um, archaeology, uh, most important communities, and of course the landscape. So what I was suggesting is a very simple process, really. It's a, an initial sift to identify the low-grade agricultural land, that's grade 3B and below, and then identify the larger brownfield sites, which could be suitable for PVs, for example, former airfields, and then use landscape character assessments where available to identify those areas with the capacity to accommodate solar arrays without detriment to the uh, landscape of the locality. And you would also, in that process, identify outstanding landscapes like national parks and um, what were formerly called areas of outstanding natural beauty but are now known as national landscapes to ensure that their setting and views out of those special areas are safeguarded as well by establishing appropriate buffer zones. So that's the old, that's the desktop start of it, part of it. And then you go into a more detailed appraisal, looking at um, actually going out in, into the area, looking at the surface cover, which again can be done actually largely from aerial photographs, um, identifying land with a flatter topography and a reasonable structure of hedgerows and woodlands, which allow some screening. So again, that makes a huge difference. You'd also identify listed buildings and archaeological sites and conservation areas and ensure that there are suitable offsets or buffer areas around these. And you put all that together, um, which is, again, quite simple, using GIS or even manual overlays to actually identify what's left. And therefore, you get areas of search those areas will be the ones which I think have uh, the greatest potential for being able to accommodate PV arrays. Does that make any sense? It does, yes. Now, who are the target audiences for this siting strategy? Well, uh, really the local authorities. Um, It's we say we have a plan-led system in this country, but sadly that's got badly eroded. Now, you could say as a planner, I would say that. But actually, if you've got a good plan-led system which identifies sites with the greatest potential, that's a huge help to industry. It means that they don't waste their time and money um, going up sort of um, back alleys um, or, or blind alleys, perhaps, uh, where there's no potential for the sites. They're directed immediately to the ones that the local authority has the best potential. So it's also a, a, a thing that should be done in partnership with industry, I think. And, of course, it means the government need to take a lead on that. So how would it work? I assume that the local authority would have this uh, siting strategy, which would be kept updated. And anybody who came along, any company who came along wanting to set up a solar farm would uh, be given it. Is that correct? Absolutely. And in fact, a very good example here, Ian, is the the wind turbine siting strategy for onshore wind. Um, My practice, um, the Landscape Partnership, and also in Ireland, we've done several. We did one for Fenland District Council, which identifies the areas uh, where wind turbines could be accommodated. Now, interestingly, these are often upland areas where you get the highest wind speeds. But Large wind turbines could easily dominate the more subtle landscape, particularly around here in in North Yorkshire, whereas in the more mountainous areas where the scale is larger, they can be accommodated. 
and and we did some interesting work on the fens where there's always been a history of windmills and we've got areas where where we could accommodate say you know three or four per square kilometer but actually in other areas it could be more than that um other areas less so there is a useful precedent and of course the other great thing is housing um the local plan system does exactly that. Um, it identifies sites where there is scope for housing. So there's, there is a really useful precedent here. Right. Do you actually know of any local authorities which have adopted such a siting strategy? Well, I don't, I'm afraid. Um, some of them, um, and including uh, the former Hamilton District Council, um, where we are in North Yorkshire, did have a landscape character assessment which refers to um, vague policies and, and, and a lot of local plans do actually refer to um, PV saying that they should take account of um, protected landscapes, they should be more in shaded places and go on and less productive agricultural land. But that's not as good enough. That doesn't actually go f- as far as identifying sites with potential. Um, so I, I'm very keen to go one step further. Now, it's my understanding that it's the council's role to approve solar farms or solar power stations below 50 megawatts generating capacity and size. Now, as far as I know, my own county council, North Yorkshire Council, doesn't have such a siting strategy for solar PV arrays so as to ensure an orderly and logical planning process. My question is, if a council or local authority with decision-making powers over the siting of solar farms doesn't have such a strategy of the type you're proposing why do you think they don't have one well i think it's quite a couple of points here really and the first is lack of resources um they don't have the money and as as we know a lot of councils are going to go bankrupt Um, it's a dire situation and if they haven't got the resources that means they haven't got the people to do it and they can't afford to bring consultants in uh, which is so frustrating because it's 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 really relatively cheap to do this the other thing is that there's not always the political will um it's well known that a, a lot of politicians particularly um you know, towards the right, feel that planning is um, an unnecessary constraint, and and they want to actually de de um, de plan us. Actually, we we used to have one of the best planning systems in the world, um, and it just gives clarity. And and, and it's, it's the, an industry often find it much more useful to have the clarity and don't see it as a constraint. So, lack of resources and political willian. Do you think a siting strategy such as this should also apply to housing developments as well as matters to do with renewable energy? Well, as I've just said, it does. Um, The local plan system uh, is intended to identify sites with the potential for housing. And the crucial thing here is, as well as my initial SIFT process to identify brownfield sites, which, of course, are the front runner, it also involves community and liaison consultation as part of the process. And if a PV siting strategy would involve the community, it would save, there would be far less hassle, one would like to think, uh, with objections to, to, to planning applications. Given that you drafted this strategy, would you take the view, perhaps, that without such a strategy, things such as the location of solar PV panels would be done on a random and possibly even opportunistic basis? Yes, um, it, it's, it's invariably developer-led. Um, either a, a, a PV operator will come along and think, oh, that looks like a, a good area because it's within, say, 10 kilometres of a switching station. And, of course, it's important that we think about the grid, but um, it, 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 it may not be right for um, landscape, cultural, it may be too close to settlements or sensitive landscapes. Um, and also, of course, landowners you know that they will see that they have less productive land or they they want to retire or something and they will approach companies so it's all it's a developer led situation which is not particularly sustainable now the council for the protection of rural england recently commissioned university college london to do some research on alternative locations for solar pv arrays and solar farms do you think there's an alternative to siting solar arrays on agricultural land, for example, commercial and residential rooftops, brownfield sites, or even car parks? Huge, huge potentially, and 
Um, if we look at the land take required for um, road schemes, um, motorways, um, look at retail parks. I mean, there's a very interesting thing, this UK um, Warehouse Association study that was just been brought out, which shows that the 20% largest warehouses can provide 75 million square foot of roof space, um, avoiding the need to take up um, an area for housing equivalent to half a million houses. And that could generate 3 billion a year, 15 gigawatts, 3 billion a year for, for, for the warehousing industry, um, which is terrific. And you could go further than that. You could actually say that in master planning sites for warehouses and factories, let's align the buildings east-west uh, rather than trying to retrofit them afterwards um, to maximise the potential of, of, of pitched roofs. On that subject, I understand that the Anglican churches in this country are aligned east-west, so have south-facing roofs. So why not well, use church roofs? I, I believe you're the church warden at Coxwell Church in North Yorkshire. So do you uh, have former, any thoughts on this former one? Former church warden. <laughs> former church warden. Yes, yes, yes. They, they, they do have a, a, a shelf life, you know. Um, yes, I mean, look, there they are. Uh, for, for, for ecclesiastical reasons, all the Anglican churches, uh, pretty well all of them in this country, are aligned east-west. Now, I know a lot of them are grade one listed buildings, but where they can be, um, where you could put PVs on these roofs, um, it would be very useful because a lot of churches are going to have to give up their oil boilers, um, and that's the policy of, of the Church of England to become more sustainable so uh, how how better to, to generate heat for the church and to um, use their roofs? Now, one very big issue that's raised its head in recent times is that of food security, particularly when it comes to the possibility of siting solar power stations on agricultural land. Do you think food security is an issue that needs to be considered? Yeah, a, a huge issue. And of course, it is absolutely preposterous to take up um, any land of higher grade than 3B, uh, as it grade 1, 2 and 3A agricultural land to sterilise that even for 10, 20 years to, to, for, for PVs. People say you can graze sheep under them and that, that's fine. Um, that that may work, but it is not utilising the land effectively. And also for lower grade land, 3B and below, we're now looking at agroforestry, um, which of course will work really well on, on, on those poorer grade soils. So th there's, there's no justification for taking up any agricultural land for PVs at all, particularly, as I said, when you've got so much potential for um, roof, rooftops and, and brownfield sites. Let me ask you a question about sustainability. Right now, the renewable energy industry places a lot of store on its sustainable credentials. We've had a strategy of the sort you're proposing, though. Can it really claim to be a sustainable industry? Well, I'm holding in my hand, in the Solar Trade Association Solar Farms 10 Commitments. And it starts off, we will focus on non-agricultural land or land which is of lower agricultural quality, uh, quality. We will be sensitive to nationally and locally protected landscapes and nature conservation areas. We will minimise visual impact where possible. We will engage with the community. I can go on. Um, there's something going wrong, isn't there? It, it's just not happening. Well, that's it. Thank you very much, Christopher Stratton, for your time. Well, I hope that's clarified. I think this is a big area and it's evolving, but it's not actually evolving in the sustainable way which it, that it should do. Uh, or as quickly, there's a lot more potential. Nice to talk to you. Thanks for listening to this first episode of Road to Zero. We hope you found it useful. Since speaking to Mark Barrett and Chris Stratton about the potential locations for solar power facilities, we can report a major development. On 26 January, the government launched a consultation on changes to building regulations, which includes proposals for mandatory rooftop solar on most new buildings, including homes, warehouses and shopping centres. The consultation forms part of the Future Homes and Building Standard 2025 and it will close on 6 March. So, to conclude, why don't you share your thoughts on the topics raised in this episode? 
Enormous challenges and opportunities lay ahead, and there's an important conversation to be had. The more people who join in, the better. So whatever your views on net zero, solar farms, on wind turbines, biomass, on nuclear power, or on food security, electric vehicles and heat pumps, whether you're for this, against that, or just plain confused, then let's hear from you. Alternatively, use your smartphone to record a short voice memo. We can use that as part of the podcast. Contact us, then email us at production at road20.uk. That's production at road20.uk. Goodbye for now.